Welcome back to the Very Short Introductions podcast. From public health to Buddhist ethics, soft matter to classics and art history to globalisation, we'll showcase a concise and original introduction to a wide range of subjects for wherever your curiosity may take you. So here is today's Very Short Introduction. Hello, my name's Thomas Dixon and I'm Professor of History at Queen Mary University of London, where I'm also the Director of the Centre for the History of the Emotions. And I have written The History of Emotions, a very short introduction. I guess the overall point of the history of emotions is twofold. Firstly, it is to enrich our understanding of the past, to help us see that people who lived in the past in all sorts of different societies and contexts were embodied, passionate, breathing, pulsating, sweating, physical human beings like us with passions and feelings. Uh, And that gives a, a new dimension to our study of the past. But secondly, the history of emotions is relevant to the present because it can help liberate us from some of the more restrictive ways we might have of thinking about the mind today. So, for example, there is a brilliant movie called Inside Out, uh, which is an excellent film for children or adults, an animation where uh, a young girl called Riley has five emotions running her brain, one of which is joy, the others are sadness, fear, anger and disgust. Uh, As I say, it's a really good film and it gives you one way of thinking about emotions. We've all got the same five emotions. Well, that is fine for an animation um, and for a bit of entertainment, but the history of emotions uh, is for grown-ups and gives us a much more rich and complex view of how human emotions are very multiple, very various, and how they've changed over time and across different cultures. Uh, Whether lust, rage, melancholy, joy, compassion, love, tears, laughter, all of these incredible diverse human feelings all have a place in history and can all give us this new angle, hopefully, on our own feelings, our own experiences today. Now, I'm an academic, and so what first got me interested in the subject of history of emotions was a sort of scholarly question, uh, which arose for me when I was doing my PhD, and I was reading uh, the Confessions of Augustine, the North African bishop and Christian writer uh, of the fourth century. And he was writing about his lust and his passions. And he was also writing about the love of God and the feelings that he should feel towards God. Uh, And I started thinking to myself, well, what is St. Augustine's theory of emotions? Because I was familiar with the psychology of emotions. I was trying to apply that to historical thinkers um, in the first year of my PhD. And I came up against this problem, which is St. Augustine does not have a theory of emotions because it's not a category that he used. Uh, And it was that problem and that question which first got me into trying to find out more about the history of emotions. And so the first thing that I found out was that the emotions as a psychological category didn't exist for St. Augustine and didn't exist for anybody until relatively recently. In fact, in my work, I've suggested it was in the 19th century in works of psychology and philosophy that the emotions as this big catch-all psychological category first came into existence. Before the emotions, there were passions, affections, uh, sentiments, all sorts of other kinds of feeling. And of course, since the 19th century, our categories have continued to change, but with this huge, great monolithic thing called the emotions uh, in the middle. And one of the things that I've tried to get clear about in my own mind and which I've written about is what is the difference between these words, a passion and affection and emotion, and also something you might have heard of called affect theory. Where do affects and affect theory come in? Uh, And those are things I've tried to answer 
in what I've written. A really key insight for me, which throws a lot of light on emotions and their history, is the idea that emotions are thoughts. That what distinguishes emotions from physical sensations like feeling pain or feeling hot or cold or hungry is that emotions have this large element of cognitive content. They are my beliefs about the world. So my terror of uh, an awful event happening is my belief that it might happen and that it would be awful if it did. It's a feeling which is full of thought and value uh, as well as energy and feeling. Uh, to take another example, if I am perhaps a religious individual in the past feeling very guilty about my experience of lust and desire, that is a really complicated uh, feeling state, which includes both a sort of urge of desire, but also uh, a moral framework and a set of beliefs about what feelings are appropriate or inappropriate. So I like to think of emotions as thoughts about the world. They're a very particular kind of embodied thoughts, which tell me what I believe and give me this kind of complex information through um, both the words that I might use to express myself, but also through my sweaty palms and my lurching stomach, my emotions are embodied thoughts. Something else which I think everybody should know about the emotions in their history is that Charles Darwin wrote an incredible book about the emotions called The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, which was published in 1872. The reason I think people should know that is because, of course, Darwin's hugely famous in the history of science for the books he wrote about uh, evolution in animals and humans. But this amazing book illustrated by photographs in the 1870s about emotions and how they're expressed is perhaps a bit less well known. Um, and there's lots we can gain from studying it, both just to see yet again how Darwin is such a curious and such a brilliant thinker in terms of the way he gathers his evidence from all around the world of emotions in animals and children and adults, but also as a sort of staging post um, between past and present ways of thinking about the emotions. We might expect Charles Darwin to believe that there's a small number of basic emotions, maybe a bit like the, the sort of caricature picture in Inside Out, but in fact, he believes in, in a very large number of emotions and he doesn't really manage to pin it down um, to a small number of universals, despite the fact that I think he would have quite liked to. Another thing that I personally found interesting in reading Darwin's book about the emotions as an Englishman myself uh, is that he has this extraordinary statement that English men rarely cry in chapter six of his book, which is all about weeping and other special expressions uh, in human beings. And this really got me thinking about the cultural history of the idea of the stiff upper lip um, and why is Charles Darwin, this great Victorian man of science, claiming that English men rarely cry? And that got me set uh, on a whole project uh, some years ago, looking at the history of tears and weeping uh, in Britain and how it changed over time. So looking at the really big picture of change across the history of emotions, what are the big things that have changed? Um, and how can studying the past help us live in the present in a more well-informed, perhaps a more um, active and constructive way? I think the really big picture, and this itself is a bit of a caricature, it is a world, we have gone from a world in which in the medieval and early modern period, there were passions of the soul, which were problems for people. There was rage and jealousy and hatred and lust and passion. And these were problems. They were moral problems. They were religious problems. They might very well lead to very unwelcome criminal or immoral activities. And when we look at emotions in the world today, it's a very different, much more secular, much more anodyne kind of picture. We're more likely to come across a meme telling us that our emotions are valid um, and that our emotions are natural and that we should definitely express them. 
So something has happened in this big picture on the journey from deadly sins to what we might call expressivism, the idea that men should cry, women should show their anger. Uh, and that expressivism is the sort of ethos we've lived with for the last 50 or 60 years. So I suggest that historical research can help us throw some light on what happened there and why we live in such a different world today. Another area I have a particular interest in, which I think the history of emotions contributes a lot to, is understanding mental health and the way that ideas have changed about which emotions are healthy, and which are unhealthy, and when an emotion like melancholy or sadness uh, can become a mental illness that we might call a depression or clinical depression. Um, and the way those words have been used obviously has changed over time. Um, although the word depression has actually been used to name an illness as well as a sort of more vague feeling state for longer than you might think. And it's then also interesting to trace depression back to the world of melancholy in the early modern period, a, a book like The Anatomy of Melancholy, uh, and to see what that word meant, it literally meant black bile, and how we got from the black bile of someone like uh, Burton in his Anatomy of Melancholy via the depression of 19th century psychiatry to the feelings uh, and ideas we have today about what makes our minds healthy or unhealthy. I think there's a risk uh, in thinking about the history of emotions that we might come to think that the sort of relatively limited palette of emotional feelings and language that we have to work with today is somehow kind of impoverished. Uh, and there is an element of looking to the past and seeing this much more vivid, varied, rich emotional life of, of passions and sin and violence and, and death and tragedy and, and so on. Um, and then looking at today and looking at psychology and thinking it all looks a bit tame. But I, I don't think we should get too carried away with that picture. Of course, we all of us today still have, even in a world of anesthetics and antidepressants, we do have the capacity for huge suffering and huge feeling, uh, positive and negative. And we have very rich ways of expressing that, ways which are always changing through new technologies. Um, so whether it's through emojis or social media uh, or all sorts of other kind of modern artistic and creative endeavors, we will always continue to change the emotional expressions that are available to us. And that will only be enriching. So I expect the history of emotions to continue into the future and our emotions to have uh, as rich a future as they have had a past, but a very different one. And the history can give us a perspective on what changes are likely to happen. I think I want to finish, as I do uh, in my very short introduction, with uh, just mentioning love, because love is this really interesting topic, which is of huge interest to almost all of us in one way or another. Most of us are looking for love or hoping for love or driven by love. But that huge word, of course, can mean so many different things to different people. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at the history of very different kinds of love that there are. C.S. Lewis, famously in the 1960s, talked about the four loves. Martin Luther King around the same time was saying similar things actually in his sermons about looking back to ancient Greek philosophy to look at the different kinds of love. What's the difference between agape and philia uh, and storge and the other kinds of love? And that's another way that we can get this interesting conversation going, I think, between the modern science and psychology of emotions and this richer sort of cultural and religious and philosophical history. Um, according to some scientists, love isn't an emotion at all which may come as a surprise. Um, it doesn't feature in quite a lot of lists of basic emotions. But then for others, love is an emotion and a really important one, but it is defined in quite a reductive and physiological way. It's about getting a burst of a certain neurotransmitter or a certain hormone that gives us a little kind of buzz of feeling good. 
And again, we might say, well, that's not really what I mean by love. And history can help us think about the many meanings of love and how historians have looked for it. So I hope that gives you a little flavor of what the history of emotions is all about. And you'll be interested to find out a bit more. For me, I think the absolute bottom line is difference. The reason it's important to study the history of emotions is to see that people are different from each other in the present and different from each other across time and in the past as well. Um, and there's a quotation from an English uh, doctor and author called Thomas Cogan, which I really like. Um, he was talking in the early 19th century about the huge diversity of passions and opinions and manners that you find in different parts of the world. And I think his words also apply nicely to what we find when we study the history of the feelings and emotions um, that different people felt in different periods. He talked about the inconceivable variety of sentiments and affections which incidentally take place among beings of the same species, inhabitants of the same sublunary system, conversant with similar objects and possessing similar powers of mind. And we are those people with our similar powers of mind, similar but not identical. Uh, and the history of emotions can help us think about all of that. Thank you for listening to the Very Short Introductions podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on your favourite app, such as Apple or Spotify, to receive all of our episodes directly in your feed. All of our episodes, new and old, can also be found on SoundCloud and YouTube at Oxford Academic.